welcome to Roll with Adventure, a Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition podcast that transports you through the magic of imagination from our world to the far-off world of Ibris, a land full of heroes and villains, the evil and the divine, monsters and miracles, and of course, magic. We are delighted to bring you this adventure from our imagination to your ears. If you like what you hear, please subscribe for future episodes and follow us on social media. If you want to learn more about us and this podcast, please visit us at rollwithadventure.com. And now, let's listen as our heroes roll with adventure. Hello and welcome to Roll with Adventure. This session's campaign is of salt and blood. My name is Cass, and I am the Dungeon Master for this ragtag band of heroes. Today, our journey into this tale of adventure, intrigue, secrets, and magic across the world of Ibris continues. This session begins mere moments from the last on the 26th of Altor, in the year 1069 PR, following the capture of Maya, Marcus, Kalina, and Alice, after they successfully freed Sharuna the serpent, from the bow of the Dauntless. Now, before we dive right in, let's meet our band of heroes. To decide the order of introduction, let's roll player initiative, not character. And remember here, we roll with adventure. So, what intelligent delight or mind-numbing tale have you to share with us tonight? Well, I'll start because I've been super excited to talk about this and scare everyone. Well... Depends on how you like existential crises. But the telescope that launched, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, it's essentially a successor to the Hubble telescope that we already have in space. And that launched in December, I think, if I remember correctly, or sometime early January. Uh, but the cool thing about it is one of the mission, things they hope to answer is what was the universe like before the Big Bang? And they're hoping that the James Webb telescope, because it's way more sensitive than the Hubble telescope, will either give us answers on the beginning of the Big Bang, on how the universe might have been, or what may have actually occurred before the Big Bang, if that's in existence. And that could open up a whole can of worms on our understanding of the universe, if it can detect some, detect anything that would hit that came before the predated Big Bang of point. I think it's 4.5 billion years. I always forget the age. Four billion years ago. Uh, so I'm excited to see what science discovers off of that. Uh, but also wondering, you know, our place in the gigantic universe that we know nothing about. So I'm going to take a plus one because I find it very interesting. But also existential crisis. Plus one. I'll jump on the existential crisis train knowledge. I learned one existential crisis fact. So you know how like single-cell organisms mutate at a much faster rate than multicellular organisms. Well, there are many single-cellular single organisms that live symbiotically with us constantly, you know, all over us. Um, anyway, sorry, uh, that's not really the point of this, but the point being is that in a forest in China, due to the rapidly changing temperatures, a species of bacteria that live in the ears of uh, a deer species uh, there have mutated uh, to the point where all, almost all of the deers have been killed. So just a reminder to everyone, 
if the same thing happens with the uh, single cellular organisms that live symbiotically with us, um, it could be really bad. So I will take a minus two because it is terrifying information. Wow, thanks. I hate it. Amazing. I do not have an ex- existential crisis fact. I have a fact about cows because, I don't know, cows are fun. And it's not actually about cows. It's about the word cattle. Um, so the word cattle derives from the Anglo-French word chadhol. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but it comes from the mid- medieval Latin term for capital. So the word for cows just means money, which makes sense because people would trade them as like money way back in the day. But I thought that was really interesting. Cows are money. Oh, I'm going to take a plus one for that. I also have a word-related bit of information. I recently learned that the phrase, don't be a pussy, the, the word pussy in this phrase comes from the word pusillanimous, which means timid or cowardly. So it's saying don't be a coward. So I don't have to be offended anymore that for, you know, reasons I thought that maybe people were being like, don't be such a girl. It just means pusillanimous. There we go. That's the thing I learned. I'm going to take a plus one. Well, let's see what you roll. Oh, wow. That was a good roll. Oh, no. I got a 20. Oh, mine's a four. I rolled a two plus one, so I got a three. The five minus two, so I also have a three. Oh, this is going to go swimmingly well. Hello, everyone. My name is Corey, and I play Kalina Floros, who is a human fighter that was an ex-soldier in the Tauran army. Hi, my name's Allie, and I'm playing Maya Volta, a human cleric of Cain, who I think is about to have a lot of time to reflect on what she's done and why she's done it. Hi, I'm Emmy. I'm playing Sylvie Antias. She's a half-elf monk, and she is very worried about the fact that all of her friends are back in jail again. <laughs> I'm Disco, and I play Alice. The Radiant Genasi Druid, who is a walking, talking, magic mirror. Now that everyone has introduced themselves, you're probably wondering, Oh gosh, where's Carlos? Where are those dulcet tones? I don't hear them. Well, Carlos got a new job, and he's not able to make it tonight, as he wasn't able to make the recording that we just did for the end of last session. Hopefully he'll be able to make it in the future. But, let's get this adventure rolling. And remember here... We roll with adventure. Actions have consequences. Even when you consider those actions to be just and right. For often there are those that do not view right and wrong the same as you. Those who, in this case, used Sharuna, a being of the depths, for their own purpose. To them, she was a beast. She provided protection. She ensured safety. She prevented the loss of life. And to use her was reasonable. Responsible, even. So to them, what are you if not responsible for what lies ahead? For the events that may transpire throughout the remainder of this journey? Perhaps they would have happened anyway. And perhaps they would not. But to them... To the people who know what you took from them, 
what they thought would protect them, well, those people will blame you for everything, even catastrophes of their own making. It happened so fast. One moment, you internally celebrated that Sharuna had been freed. The next moment, you were being escorted to the brig under heavily armed guard, a force clearly too large for you to handle, especially without reliable access to magic and only improvised weapons. Sylvie, how do you feel bearing witness to this looking down from the crow's nest? What races through your mind? What thoughts plague you as your friends are dragged to the brig? As she sees everyone come up, um, she's immediately worried, like, oh no, are they just gonna kill my friends? But then as soon as, like, it looks like everybody's just going to go back and be really bored down below and hopefully be fine, she calms down a little bit, but is still like, oh no, like, all of my friends, we just got out of prison, and this is our chance to be free, and now everybody else is going back to prison, and I'm going to be really lonely. And also, I really need to go sneak down and tell Kalina that her brother's on the ship. The brig is small and cramped, likely intended only for one or two prisoners at a time, not four. And while the lack of space makes it quite uncomfortable, there is also a disquiet a wrongness with which you must contend. For as is usual to seafaring vessels, the brig acts twofold. Firstly, as a place to imprison captives, and secondly, to extinguish errant and dangerous magic that could threaten the vessel. As such, it should come as no surprise that you are robbed of your magic, of your supernatural capabilities, and the likely tools of your escape. Your weapons, your tools, your packs, and such have all been confiscated and locked in a nearby chest. And all you can do is await the judgment of the captain. It is a short while later that the captain appears. There is no warmth in her countenance, no kindness, not even the joy of adventure that previously shone through her like a beacon. Instead, there is only coldness, a measured coldness derived from a mask of anger and fear. Her judgment was swift and measured. You shall remain in the brig. You shall remain in the brig on half rations for the remainder of this journey. For each death that occurs, you will pay a price in blood. They shall be on your hands, upon your back. Five lashes for each colonist, and twenty-five for each member of the crew. These lashes will be delivered upon arrival in Atsakan. And with that she turned and left, leaving you to the brig, the guards, and your thoughts. Each of you in the brig, how do you feel 
what races through your minds. Alice will find a comfortable spot to lean on the wall. And he really doesn't mind it because he's spent far longer in different prisons that did not even enable as much movement of his neck as this one does. So he's he's quite comfortable and at peace and uh, it's almost like meditating. Um, he kind of um, tunes all the noise out and actually has a little bit of a smile on his face. Tulina is trying to think of a way to get her friends off the hook. Um, she kind of feels bad for kind of roping them in to the whole thing on the whim of Sybil saying to help her. But uh, that's kind of all she's kind of thinking about and thinks about her probably for a while. Uh, she really doesn't mind herself getting the lashes and being cramped, but uh, definitely feels terrible for Alice and Maya and Marcus about to take lashes because of her suggestion. Maya is doesn't regret what everybody has done. She very firmly feels that it was the right thing to do. And she feels a sense of resignation. I think probably all of us at this point are quite used to doing something that authority figures disagree with and then being severely punished for it. At this point, after, what, six years on Merciful, it's probably pretty much a part of normal life. But the number of lashes that we may receive, I think, is giving... Maya a little bit of anxiety. She won't be the first time that she has been whipped in punishment, but 25 per crew member could add up really quickly. The most Maya has ever been sentenced to is 60. When she was in the prison, 14 months after she arrived, she shoved a guard away from Sylvie and she was sentenced to 60 lashes, but... They only gave her 20 at a time and let her heal in between. I think she's felt like remembering that experience, and that was 20. But 25 per crew member, are they gonna, are they gonna pause in between? Are we gonna get them, like, how's it gonna work? And I think she's feeling nervous about that, because that was a very painful, difficult experience. It was the 29th of Altor. The day it all began to go wrong the day that the first price would be exacted from the Dauntless, three days after Sharuna was set free. Those of you in the brig, you hear a faint, shouted order. It's not unusual, but then you hear the sound of muffled running and many voices shouting. There is a change to the regular creaking of the ship that you've grown so used to since you set foot on the Dauntless. Something is happening. You can't hear what is being said, despite the fact that the shouting is quite likely loud for you to be able to hear it down here. But the tone of the noises, the footsteps, the shouting, it's frantic. What shoots through each of your heads at this outburst from above? Remember, Sylvie and your other friends are still up there. I think up till now, Maya has been feeling really relieved that <clears throat> at least Sylvie is not stuck here with us. But now I think Maya's rethinking that, that 
Maybe that's actually not such a good thing. If the crew is right and there will be more monster attacks, Sylvie's probably at more risk up above, so I think she's very, very worried about Sylvie. So Kalina, I'm assuming, would she recognize, like, maybe the movements are, like, fighting or anything like that, or just running around is what it would seem like? Something's running around, things like that? They're different. You haven't been in, really, a naval combat before, so... Aside from your brief combat with the sea slime, or whatever it was. And even that, it didn't have the denizens the ship really helping. They were responding to other problems at the time. But for you, you haven't been stationed on a boat. So you wouldn't really know the sounds of combat like that. But it could be. Kalina would spend most of the time when she hears that frantic noise yelling at the guard to say, Hey, what's going on? Or... You know, tell us something with a bit of anger, just be like yelling, like, hey, look, we can help, and you guys can keep an eye on us. Uh, obviously, it's in vain, but she would still try that, and then she would just be wondering what's going on. Have I been able to reach out to my familiar at all mentally? Unfortunately, because you are in an anti magic field, no. You know your familiar has not been dismissed, and it is slinking around the ship somewhere. It hasn't been... it hasn't left, but you haven't been able to get in touch with it. And you, it hasn't come down to you. Likely, it probably felt that you were in the field that it would dismiss it. Alice is just going to continuously just try and reach out, um, even if it's not getting him anywhere because he's, you know, he thinks it's important to know that Sylvie is safe and yeah. So even if it's um, not okay, he'll try to reach out and he'll also comfort those around him. Well, Sylvie, unlike your companions, you see the horror unfold below you on deck. Only a few moments earlier, Lachius had sighted some rocks in the mist. Possibly the wreck of a ship. With shouted orders, the Dauntless had slightly changed course to avoid it. But it wasn't fast enough. Four scaly, winged monsters emerged from the fog in the direction of the rocky outcroppings, gliding on almost soundless wings. Khan's voice exploded from the crow's nest beside you. Sea Drakes! You see the crew looking up, but already it's too late. The four monsters, their long and sinuous bodies, covered in scales of mottled blue and green and gray, they struck the deck. In one single motion, they dropped like stones, folding their front arms against their bodies to collapse the supportive webbing they used to glide through the air, sort of like a flying squirrel. The force behind their fall gave even more power as they struck their prey. Each unfortunate individual disappeared in a blur as the sea drake dropped onto them, folding around them, clamping their victim's head with their prehensile tails as they used their momentum to roll forward and propel themselves off the other side of the Dauntless, dragging their screaming prey into the waters with a splash. 
the screams of terror were brief. For from your vantage point, you could see the water quickly churn around the flailing victims as hatchlings and juveniles, smaller sea drakes too young to strike onto the deck, swarmed the unfortunate casualties of this attack. Will each of you please roll me a d100? Oof, 29 for Kalina. 73. I rolled a 52. I rolled a 72. Ah, how unfortunate it was to be them. From your perspective in the brig, the sounds of chaos above have quieted, and the sounds of the vessel have returned to normal. But then you hear footsteps, the first officer approaching you through the gloom. Staying more than an arm's length from the bars of the cell, he glares at you from beneath his bushy eyebrows. For a moment, he does nothing but stare in silence, his posture straight as an arrow. And then he speaks. The first attacks have occurred. Now that you've robbed us of our protection, no doubt this is the first of many. The monsters carried off four of your colonists. Eugraphios, Evripides, Antiochus, Yanis, Yanis, Altorius Ovi Primopopolis, and Nikos Aristeus. I hope their deaths haunt you. That's twenty lashes for each of you when we reach Atsakan. A price too small, in my opinion. The blood on your backs will be insufficient to wash the blood from your hands. I leave you now to your guilt. Think about those we have just lost, and the blow you have struck against your own community before it has even begun. As the first mate steps back, the sound of his boots echoing into the recesses of the ship, you can't help but imagine the faces of each of those individuals mentioned as dead. You weren't close to them, but you knew them, or of them. Eugraphios. He was a simple grain farmer, with a smile and an infectious laugh. His farm had provided some of the best grain on Merstwall, used for baking and for alcohol. When his name was drawn from the lottery, he'd said he looked forward to starting a new life on Atsakan, and that you could grow grain anywhere if you knew his secret. Unfortunately, now, he has taken that secret to a watery grave. Yanis Yanis, the priest of Hime. Though not skilled in miracles such as Maya, the young Magma Genasi was a member of Hime's order, and he touched the lives of almost everyone in the community. His stoic wisdom, his calm demeanor, and his inexhaustible spiritual support will be sorely missed by many. Altorius, one of Talmar Mist's apprentices, this elderly halfling had often spoke to anyone visiting the tannery. Marcus and Kalina can both remember many conversations with Altorius. Conversations 
they will never get a chance to continue. And Nikos, the fisherman, and until a few minutes ago, the leader of your previous work detail upon the Dauntless. He'd grown so much since your time in the prisons. Time when he'd been harsh towards Sylvie for slowing the work detail down. He'd become much kinder. A better man. All for naught. How do you feel about the deaths? Do you have any reactions to the names the first officer has shared with you? Alice is going to look to everyone and just be like, guys, um, did we mess, did we mess up here? Kalina would have actually punched the bars, like, damn it! Is that a yes, Kalina? Do you think we messed up? I don't know. Sybil said to help her, but maybe we did it too early? Maybe helping her was not like letting her go. Maybe we should have given her counseling or perhaps like good food or I don't know. Maybe that wasn't helping her exactly as the prophecy said. But once we knew she wasn't a monster, how could we let her be used like that? I'm the first person to empathize with the whole, oh, they're useful and different, like an instrument of use, not a living being. But I don't know, um, I, I didn't always like, you know, helping my former employers or anything like that, but I did it and I don't know, I, I don't know, maybe we messed up. Maybe we shouldn't have let her go. Maybe. I mean, I don't really care for the using something. I mean, everyone uses someone a degree. I mean, we're all cannon fodder for the warden anyway. It's just four more people to add to my tally. I mean, nobody can set me free and send me home. To be able to do that for somebody else means a lot to me. Whether it's worth four people's lives, I don't know. Maybe we could have waited until the ship arrived and and then set her free, but, you know, maybe we'd, we would never have had the opportunity again. Maybe if these dumb bastards would let us out of here, we could help. You hear that, you stupid guard? Part of this is your fault. And Clean will just walk around. Uh, well, more of like... Shuffle. <laughs> turn around since there's not a lot around. Yeah, tell him, Kalina. Keep your mouth shut or we'll take away all your food. Someone's never been in the battlefield before. Or had a good berry. Damn it, and she'll hit the she'll hit the cage she'll hit the bars again. And this time now her hand's starting to bleed. Kalina, don't don't do that. You don't have to beat the bar. Maybe mm. Did did um cast didn't didn't um Sharuna sing something. Wasn't Sharuna singing? Yes, she was. She was singing a song. A song in a language you didn't know. Can I try and just, like, do my best to, like, continuously try and remember it and get it right and kind of hum it? Give me a performance check. 
Okay, performance. Okay, that is an 18 here, and my performance is a plus 3. So that would be 18, 19, 20, 21 performance. You're pretty good. You think that you have the, like, the right tones and, like, the notes that she was hitting? But you don't know what the words were. And, like, what what was behind them. You can sort of get, you can get most, you can get some of them. But not all of them there. You surprise yourself, even, for the amount that you do get. And how close it feels like it is. But it feels hollow. Like it's missing something. Well, Alice will be spending a lot of his time trying to uh, hum that and get it right. And this is when Alice mar- multiclasses into Bard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's happening. <laughs> Sylvie, you saw these people meet their fate. You saw them get dragged off the ship by the sea drakes. Even if you didn't know who it was, within a few hours, the whispers of the names amongst the colonists and the crew have reached you. Do you have any thoughts or reactions to these people? Sylvie would have pretty much immediately said a prayer to Ashen, like, well, hopefully, hopefully they don't suffer. She would have acknowledged that she knew the people, but none of them were anyone that she had a lot of connection with. She would have maybe felt more about Nikos, because she did sort of have that conflict with him, but it is sort of just a, like, well, at least it's none of my friends. That really sucks, though. Fair. It is a few hours later, for those of you in the brig. The guard didn't take away your meager evening meal. And you're doing your best to comfortably arrange yourselves to rest and hopefully sleep for the night. Can you each roll me a perception check? Three. Thirteen. Dirty twenty. Maya. In the distance, you can hear whispered voices and quiet footfalls coming closer to you. Your guard has recently left. Switched out to go and get his own meal. But the next shift has not arrived. The light is dim. Only one swaying lantern lights the area near your cell. And in the gloom, those whispered voices and footfalls become louder and get closer. You see a number of people standing just at the corner, just out of light. Their forms, each with a debarnacler in hand, leading them, stepping out into the light, you see Agni. Can Maya shake her friends awake? Yeah. I think when she heard the voices getting closer, she would have tried to wake them up and would be getting to a standing position. Agni Stavros, the Butcher of Merstwall. 
she actually was a butcher. Uh, her shop was on the main street. Uh, but she has an elderly human lady in her 60s. Her face is etched with lines. Lines from hard work in the sun. From her time in the prison. And you know that she's good with a blade because she can cut up any piece of meat. Any animal and divide it out. The swaying lantern, it casts a moving, sinister shadow across her face. Are you satisfied now? She hisses at you. You've killed Nikos, Eugrafios, Altorius, and Yanis. And this is only the beginning. You've doomed us all. This was our chance for freedom. And instead you've... Of helping, you've signed our death warrants with your selfishness. Alice will start laughing, um, which begins softly and and gets louder. <laughs> Did you really fall for that bit of nonsense from the crew that we were the ones responsible for this? Are you kidding me? I thought you were smarter than that. Give me a deception check. That is a natural 20. <gasps> no way! Plus five. Beyond the, cir- beyond the circle of light, you see more faces come forward. Faces that are now, as they get closer, are just beyond the bars. Faces still etched in shadow, but in the dim light you're able to recognize a few more. Eutropia Syntic, one of an individual who over the years has been quite antagonistic to Maya, one who's always wanted to get back at your group for doing so well, and Amato Irini, an individual who, at one point in the past, your group had decided not to sell vegetables to. Two people that both didn't like you. But the others, and even them, there's this look, this look of maybe. You see, they are trying to thin our numbers as much as they can so that there's more rations and food to go around once we get there. This is all a plan from the same people who have kept us under their thumb for this long to put us down as numbers in this future colony to count how much we can eat for for their benefit. Friends, do not be fooled by this. Do not be, for lack of a better term, I really do like sheep, but for this expression, sheep to these wolves. We know better. If you thought we were the ones assigned the warrant, who put us on this boat in the first place? How many of you have ever seen a battlefield? It's exactly what we're walking into. And Kalina's trying to, like, put herself between everyone. Thinking, I'm not sure how this brig looks. Is it, like, open in the middle, or do we have, like, a wall on either side? 
wall on either side, and then there's bars at the front. Okay, so yeah, Kalina's putting herself up front and all that. There's this look of confusion going across. Quite a few of the members of this party look like they're going, yeah, no, that makes sense. But you see Agni. She twists and tightens her grip on the debarnacler that she's holding. Oh, you're Trixie. All of you. You won't live to see the result of what you call the warden. No, this was your handiwork. The captain wouldn't lie to us, but the captain, their, their punishment's too good for you. You talk about a death warrant? We'll sign yours with our own hands. Trixie isn't even a word. How do you plan to be literate enough to sign anything, and especially an important document like a death warrant? She raises her debarnacler as if to strike at you through the bars. Kalina, you've interposed yourself between Alice as I'm assuming he's sort of like popping his head out beside you because he's shorter than you, being to say his thing and then you're sort of shoving him back. You aren't sure if they can kill you this way, if to strike at you through the bars, but you don't have anywhere to go, and they can strike at you at will. But as she lines up to bring her blow down, there's a reedy young voice that calls out, That's enough of that! And for possibly one of the only times on this ship, that you've ever been relieved to hear the voice of Midshipman Ferreira, you hear it. Agni spins on him, her debarnacler still upraised, and then she drops the weapon to her side. I cannot say that I would not be happy to see them all dead, but the captain has already set punishment for them, and her word is law. Drop your weapons, back up to finish your suppers. I won't give your names to Mr. Croup if you don't give me any trouble. You hear the clatter of falling debarnaclers and watch as the colonists, people you know, all abandon their murderous intent. As they make their way to the deck above, you see why. Mr. Ferreira was not alone. Behind him are five burly sailors armed with swords. He details two of them to remain with you, and then he leaves without a word. You now find yourself in consistent and ongoing protective custody. One of the guards spits in your direction. I'd have let them kill you, but orders is orders. You're lucky you colonists are so closely watched on this ship. Or perhaps we wouldn't have gotten here in time. Left Char's head first in the magic building elves. You think some brutes with improvised with barnacles are scary? The guards they begin to talk back and forth. What goes through your heads? A few moments ago some colonists had just tried to kill you. People you've known. None that you'd exactly call friends. I don't think we'll be very liked once we get to to, 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 to again, right? Yes, that's again. 
if we survive the punishment when we get there. Yeah. But I have to say, I've been feeling really kind of guilty. I, I'm willing to die for what I think is right, but I'm not necessarily willing to sentence other people to death for doing what I think is right, but man, these people... Truda didn't exactly explain. No, did she? She didn't say, oh, I'm leaving all of you to die, so it's not our fault. We didn't know. Well, no, they didn't explain it very well, but I, I really think the fact that, you know, so many of them came down here to kill us while we were helpless, I feel a little less guilty now. Well, I've walked through Amarath having to worry about anyone stabbing me in the back, so it won't be different than that. But you two don't, you guys don't deserve this. Rolling it together, Kleena, was a decision we made as a group. Yeah, Kalina. We're all in this together. Both of you are too nice. I think in our own ways we're all used to being unpopular. I just... I mean, I know Sylvie will... I just wonder what some of our friends are going to think, whether we'll have any friends at all. Other than Sylvie, of course. Yeah, at this rate, the only one who could probably tolerate us as Lashes, and that's just because he's so damn lonely. Oh, yay. Well, you know, at least we've got the five of us. We've been through a lot together, and got through this, too. In the background, Marcus is mostly quiet, but he looks like if anyone had really attempted to get into a fight that he would have fought tooth and nail to defend you. It is on the 15th day of your voyage, the first of Morgren, that a clear sign the Dauntless has passed the halfway mark through the mist wall is seen. A change in sea life. Sylvie, from your vantage point in the crow's nest, you'd noticed a vague light ahead. A strange light, one that clung near the waterline, a light you'd pointed to Khan, and had brought a mischievous twinkle to his eye, and a single finger pressed to his lips for you to keep quiet. As you closed in on the light, there was, for one of the few times, a break in the mists, a clearing almost like a bubble. For while the sky remained obscured in mists, the horizon, for at least a mile, was not concealed in it, and instead was bathed in light. Light not from the heavens, but from the waves, from beneath the waves. Shoals of luminescent fish swam before the dauntless, fish of all kinds and sizes, that swam and shifted as if painting a sunset of greens and blues, purples and reds, yellows and orange. For a brief moment, you were caught up in the sights before you saw Khan leaning back with his arms crossed, and you followed his gaze out to the center of the mistless space. A single, towering spire of black stone 
riddled with holes and ledges. It was around this tower that the fish swum and seemed to gather. And you were informed that this marker meant that the Dauntless was likely about halfway through the mists. You passed it, and eventually the mists enveloped the Dauntless once more. And all you could be left to think was how beautiful the colors had been, and how beautiful they continued to be. For beyond this point, it seemed that the fish had a light of their own. Sylvie, it used to be that your off-shifts were a break from the crow's nest, but now it might be accurate to say that your shifts in the crow's nest are a break from your off-shifts. Though you were not officially blamed for what your friends did freeing Sharuna, many people, colonist and sailor alike, are holding your friends' actions against you. Though there are some that speak in hushed whispers, rumors that they were framed. Since the incident, more than half of the colonists on your watch have approached you, one at a time or another. A small number seek to better understand what happened. Ambrose, Silas, Petros. They all ask you why your friends took such a great risk and perhaps doomed everyone on this ship to a watery grave. Far more, though, have made a point of insulting you, taunting you, complaining about your friends, threatening them even threatening you. Sylvie, I have two questions for you. What do you say to the more sympathetic colonists who seek you out for an explanation? And how do you react to the colonists that have grown to hate you and your friends? The people who are kinder, who come up for explanations. I think mostly she would tell them that her friends did what they thought was right. That not every decision is exactly right or exactly wrong, and they did the best that they could. To the people who are not so kind, I think she would mostly try and keep quiet. She hasn't been alone on her own for a very long time so she's really not used to dealing with like conflict without having her friends to back her up so I think for the most part she would try and stay quiet because she knows that like probably picking a fight with all of these people would be a really bad idea but I'm sure that on occasion she slips up and says, You're just afraid, and that's okay, but you shouldn't take it out on me. The crew, when they can, are hard on you as well. You suspect that you're being served smaller portions of food at mealtime, and whenever possible, crew members curse you and your friends. All except for Khan, who remains friendly towards you. He knows you were in the crow's nest. He knows that you weren't part of whatever happened down there. 
and he is still blissfully unaware of your connections to his sister. Of all the colonists, the one who willingly spends time with you on your off shifts is Lashus. And given, though, how the colonists hate and fear him, the time you spend with him isn't doing much to help their perception that you and your friends aren't their enemies. But at least when you are with him, it has the added benefit of keeping the other colonists away, as they're mostly still afraid of him. Sylvie, what are you actually doing your off shifts? This is where you would normally be having a meal or resting. Do you keep to yourself? Do you try to spend time with Lashas? Do you go and feed Alice's sheep? Yes, she would definitely be taking care of Alice's sheep. She knows they're very important to him. And also, probably it gives her some time away from most of the people. I imagine there's not a ton of people in where all of the animals and stuff are being held. And I think... Has she heard about... Probably everybody knows their punishment, right? Yes, you have. So she would be doing everything she could to, like, prepare ointments and, like, maybe not, like, actually make them, but, like, pull all the herbs and, like, crush them up and mix them together, even if she doesn't have all the ingredients, because she knows, like, my friends are going to need help when we get there and... They helped me when I got out of the furnace, so I'm going to help all of them. And it's going to be awful, but putting things together really helps her, and she definitely would have, like, latched onto Lashes. It's been, like, over ten years since she's lived by herself, so even though she's not, like, technically alone, she feels very alone, so she would be just, like, doing her very best to connect to anybody who would keep talking to her kindly, so. He will definitely speak kindly to you. You've had a few small interactions with Quintus. He seems to be kept on a much shorter leash than before. Perhaps the captain or the crew suspect his involvement, but he wasn't caught red-handed. Still, you're not allowed to see your friends in the brig. And you have no way of really getting messages to them, for they're not allowing any visitors after the attempt on their life. Did you do anything after you probably hear the hushed whispers that a group of colonists tried to storm the brig and murder your friends? I think Sylvie would have immediately been like, oh no, like, I need to go keep watch, but then... Finding out, like, nobody's at all allowed in there, I guess it's fine. She will have probably decided that they aren't going to let anybody get to them, so they're not dead. But she was probably very upset. She would have felt like she failed because she wasn't there to protect them. Even though she didn't know, it still would have been something she thought about a lot. It was the tenth of Morgren that tragedy struck once more. Or perhaps was it catastrophe? An island had been sighted in the distance during the first watch after dawn. 
close enough that it warranted exploration. But as the Dauntless drew closer to it, this island sank beneath the very waves. And then it struck. Tendrils, tendrils dripping a black ichor, like living shadows, clammy and slimy, these black tentacles reached up the sides of the Dauntless and wrapped around their victims, crushing them before dragging their lifeless corpses to the depths. Sylvie, you had barely made it to the crow's nest as this had began. The creature's strike during the watch change It had led to increased chaos and delay, a delay that would cost more lives. But armed with axes and blades, the crew had chopped and driven the creature back. The severed portions of its inky black tentacles, still struggling and twitching, they were careful to push them back into the ocean with long poles after one sailor had failed to realize the tendrils had enough life to still kill. And so, the dice shall again decide the victims of fate. Will each of you please roll me two d100s? Two? This was a very scary sounding monster. Fifteen and seventy-seven. I got 95 and 40. 63 and 41. Okay, so I got 73 last time. This time I got 74 and 85. From the brig, you heard the screams this time, and the groan of the dauntless beneath the creature's weight as its inky tentacles snaked across the ship and ensnared their victims. And so you were not surprised when the first mate appeared once more a while later. He stands more than an arm's length from the bars of your cell. His teal-blue skin tinged black now with the creature's ichor in places. As he glares at you from beneath his bushy eyebrows. Again, he does nothing but stare for a moment in silence. His posture straight as an arrow his back unbent, and then he speaks. Eight. Eight lives were lost this day to your folly. Eight more souls cast to the depths below. Lives of not just you colonists, but also of my crew. Cathasach, Arsinius, Badolf Gerhard, Sigismund Talori, good men who died for nothing more than your pride. Each had the promise of a life and a career ahead of them. And your colonists, Socrates, Balbino, Daenerya, Seraphim, Angiolo, Sheraclea, Geltrude, Elkaios, Croesus, Basilius, and Chloe Barros. That is another hundred lashes for each of you, on top of the twenty. 
I hope for your sake we don't lose anyone else. He shakes his head. He turns, disgust clear in his eyes, and departs without another word. Though the names of the sailors are meaningless to you, none that you recognize, you can't help but recall the colonists that you have lost now along the way. Socrates, a local baker by trade, his goods were a usual staple for many, though you always thought they were a bit too dry and bland. Others raved about how amazing they were. But for you, your interactions with Socrates revolved mostly around his donations to the orphanage before his wares became stale he would often donate them that charitable heart well it won't be beating anymore Deanaria the half-halfling woman only slightly shorter than Alice married to Parseus and Giolo a man left behind on Merstwall they had operated the only functional mill together on Merstwall, a place you'd milled grain in the past. You can't help but realize the pain this will cause Parseus when he hears the news. Sheraclea. Cherry for short. Each of you briefly hear snatches of songs as you think of her. A young woman with an incredible voice and a head of huge, curly hair. She'd often performed at the various taverns across Merstwall, and was sought after by many men and women. You'd heard rumors that she was having multiple affairs with already married men and women across Merstwall. And you shudder to think what the lovers left behind will think of you. Charisus, a half-elf like Sylvie, but his dusky skin belied his descent not from the bright elves of Oscar rule, but the shaded elves, and wherever they hailed from. You'd had various interactions with him over the years. A goat herder by trade, he'd always kept his goats, destructive little escape artists as they were, under far better control than other goat herders. Rumors had abounded that, like Alice, he could speak to his goats, but you'd never had a chance to verify it, a question that you'll now, unfortunately, never be able to ask. Though, you must now wonder who will take care of his goats, left alone now amongst the other animals in the cargo. And Chloe, this one hits you hard, Maya. For you have... No. You had history. And it is quite fitting that it was your die roll that decided her fate in this situation. <gasps> Memories flash through your eyes of the last six months of your imprisonment in Vesican alongside Chloe, your cellmate. The conversations you had, the aspirations you shared, the plans you'd made. All for naught. 
How do you each feel about the deaths? Do you have any reactions to the names the First Officer has shared with you this time? I think Maya feels sad at the loss, but I think also still not really sure exactly what Sharuna's role was and to what extent freeing Sharuna has really brought all of this on. Like, would it have happened anyway? Is it possible that every monster attack is maybe not their fault? She's not really sure. I mean, obviously, for the crew, it's a lot easier if some outsiders are to blame for the bad things that happen. And the other thing that keeps... The question that Maya keeps asking herself is, how did the ship make it to Apsican, or however far it did make it, without Sharuna? Like, isn't this just the, the cost of making the voyage? Why should Sharuna have had to suffer just so that Talren could try to colonize a new area? The only thing that would be heard mutter for Kalina, she's like, 12. But internally she's thinking that she's just killed 12 more people. 12 more humans, specifically. And she just kind of withdraws to herself. Doesn't really say much of anything. But if anyone sees, looks at her, she definitely seems extremely upset. Like, angry. Yeah, um, Alice is just adding up these lashings at this point, because this is a lot. And how much longer do they have left on the ship? It's getting to be a high number. I think another thing that Maya is thinking about is, the f like, what everybody is doing on the ship and the purpose of the ship and the way that Talren took Amaranth and the fact that it wants to colonize Atsakan and what that means and, you know, whether there's anybody there or not anybody there or what right does Talren to have to keep expanding and, and ruining people's lives. I think she still feels like freeing Sharuna was the right thing to do. Kalina has no longer thinks it was right. Uh, she definitely is thinking this is too much. Too many. Sylvie, you saw it with your own eyes, and you've heard the names whispered amongst the colonists and crew. Do you have any thoughts? I think that Sylvie's reaction to this loss would be more dramatic. She would feel really, like, for people. Sure, you know, this is a dangerous journey, but twelve... And we're only halfway there. And my friends are going to suffer for every single person that dies. Ooh, it's a lot. And so she doesn't have a ton of like direct thoughts about the specific people that were lost. But she does think a lot about how many lives might be lost before they even make it to Atsakan, and what that might mean for all of them. And she is feeling a little bit sad and very concerned that her friends are not going to be okay after we get off this boat. 
Alice, Kalina, and Maya. Your stomachs rumble as the time for your noon meal, if half-rations can be called a meal at all, approaches. Footsteps approach. Your guards don't even look up from their card game, but you see it. Three sailors advancing towards you. None of them holding food. One of them calls out to the guard. We don't want any trouble. We just want what's right. The guards look up. See the three sailors. They note that none are carrying food or water. They stand up. The shorter of the two says, What's right is obeying the captain's orders. They've as good as killed us, and I want my revenge before it's too late. The leader of the sailors retorts. Not on our watch, the taller guard answers, drawing his sword. The leader of the sailors takes a step back. No need for that now. We don't want trouble with you. Our fight is with them. He motions to you. Seeing the steel that these sailors also carry. It's perhaps one of the first times that you're actually thankful for these bars between you and the outside. A sword would be much easier to navigate between them. Far more easy than a debarnacler would have. You'll go back up now, the shorter guard says, with no more trouble. If you leave now, this little insubordination can stay between us friends. It's not that I don't agree with you, what you want. But we follow the captain's orders, or we're all lost to chaos. You've sailed enough to see that. There are some parting threats. Those that have lost any terror they might have previously held. And the sailors slink back towards the upper decks. How do the three of you feel about the fact that the guards just defended you. And that there are sailors that wish to kill you. I think for Maya, it's really cementing that when we are on Atsakan, where things are going to be very difficult, we'll still likely be under the control of the captain. We've got to receive all these lashes, and the recovery period for that is going to be kind of long and we're going to be vulnerable and I think Maya's starting to worry about whether we actually will live that long after we make landfall. Alice isn't upset by this um, because what he's noticing is while the colonists all move as one because of their familiarity and shared um, struggle and numbers um, the crew seems to be easily divisible, um, and at each other's throats as long as they are not in 
direct communication with their superiors. So, um, he sees this as a, potentially an opportunity. Uh, this all kind of reminds Kalina of when she left for Amarath and how much hate she had for the Amarathians at the time. This time she doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything. Um, she understands exactly where that rage comes from. And she just feels guilty knowing it was her fault that 12 people died. With those thoughts rolling through your mind, we'll move forward. Six days later, on the 16th of Morgren, the 30th day of your voyage. The mists began to thin. But oh, the sight that you beheld, Sylvie, was not a kind one. For what you could now half see within the threads of mist were spires of rock and reef and shipwrecks. Shipwrecks scattered all about, riddled with things that moved. Sea drakes here, and other things there. Can you give me a history check? Oh yeah, I'm really good at these. <laughs> That's an 8 minus 1, so I got a 7. You recognize two designs of ships, of the many that are scattered about. You recognize two that are of Talren's design, similar to the Dauntless, and the prison vessel that had originally brought you into the bay at Merstwall. These vessels, they're far larger than the ones that sailed over Lake Ventor back home. But amongst the wrecks, you note many other ones. Ships of designs you do not recognize. And if it had not been for Khan pointing out which ones he recognized and teaching you, you wouldn't know what they were. He pointed out that there were some from Northern Aventai, ships of the Raider Kings that controlled the bloody lands of the Trolltetfjord Kingdoms, and ships from the Kingdoms of Westmark and Eltharad. But there were others he could not identify, stranger vessels of a different design that littered this graveyard of ships. But you'd be beyond the mists soon. True to his word, three days later, on the 19th of Morgren, the Dauntless escaped the mist wall. There was much rejoicing and merriment all around. Rations of rum were shared, even amongst the colonists, excluding those in the brig. And when you returned to the crow's nest that night, you saw the stars for the first time in over a month, Sylvie. You can see the sky. 
gazing up at the night sky, you can't help but see the beauty of it. The work of the Celestial Triad, a subset of the Triadrian Pantheon, their work on full display. Gnosis, the gloaming lord, he spreads his cloak of dreams to be the very canvas of the night across the sky, bringing blacks and blues and purples. Liana, the queen of starlight, though she is not directly or officially acknowledged in Talren as the goddess of luck and of stars, even though she's a queen, she still finds purchase. And above you, her handiwork, the stars that glimmer like diamonds, like tiny motes of divinity. And even Sol, the last of the celestial triad, the lord of sunlight. His work illuminates the purple child and gray mother, Ashta and Tolmi, the two moons of Ibris. How do you feel now that you are beyond the mist wall. Sully is very happy to be out of the mist. I'm sure she utters something along the lines of, I never thought that I would be so happy to see stars. But she's also very concerned because she knows that her friends are about to be in a lot of pain and she doesn't like that and it makes her really sad. But also she's excited to go explore Atsukan after everybody's better. And she's positive that everyone will be fine. We'll all make it through. It will just be not fun for a while. Over the next few nights, Khans informed you it will take probably about four days before you'll be able to see Atsukan. He points out various constellations of importance. Liana's beacon... This single brightly shining star is often used for navigation purposes, as it points north. It is said to have been a gift from Liana for those sailors who depended on her luck and paid homage to her upon the waves. And its dark twin, the Liar's Star, a single brightly shining star that is in the same general vicinity as Liana's beacon, what seems to move around the night sky, making navigation difficult and confusing. It's said that it sometimes appears as the tip of a wider constellation known as the Coiling Serpent. And from that, he points out the Coiling Serpent one night, composed of 29 stars, the Liar's Star making up the tip of its outstretched tongue while the tip of the Coiling Serpent's tail points towards Liana's beacon. Just another way to make it dangerous to follow that constellation. For are you sure it was the tip of the tongue and the liar's star? Or the tip of the tail and Liana's beacon? Many making that mistake had led a navigator astray. He points 
to a composition of 33 stars that depict a crab bearing a mountain upon its back. This constellation, it appears low on the southern horizon. And it has been quite useful in the past for navigating. He calls it the Continent Crab. Over the various nights, there are a few clusters of stars that sometimes glow and sometimes do not. He calls them the Hidden Cluster. It's said to depict four or five jellyfish, and has multiple meanings based on how many of the clusters shine brightly. And generally, it is a lucky sign, as with each additional cluster that shines brighter, it is said to be an even better omen, one of safe haven. One night, he points out, 19 stars, depicting a predatory shark, the hunter shark, bearing upon it three jagged battle wounds. And for that briefest moment, the way those wounds are aligned, you can almost imagine that the symbol is very much like Kugosa's. It's just missing that line in between. But as you think of that, he tells you that when it shines brightest in the celestial sky, it is said that blood is being spilled, or will be spilled. A bad omen. He says that seeing the shark while the constellation is bright is a sign of death. And it is brighter than he has ever seen it before. And last, he points out a composition of 15 stars. They are said to create the maw of what is known as the devouring worm. It is hard to actually tell what this is meant to look like, but he tries to point out that there's a almost as if the f first five stars create a smaller jagged mouth, and then the other five create another around it, and the last five another around it, like rows and rows of devouring teeth. Along with the hunter shark, it glows brightly, an omen of impending disaster. Throughout these nights, as you've learned these things, are there any questions you would have asked? I think she probably would have asked how he knew all of this, but then she probably also would have asked who named all of the constellations and who decided what they meant. Like, the mob, the devouring worm, like, that's very odd and very specific. Is the devouring worm like a real thing? Should she be afraid? He'd chuckled at your questions and he'd said they were wrapped up in superstitions. That sailors sailors had always known what they were. They had gone back before there was even writing, perhaps. It was said that 
these these animals these creatures of the deep they were manifestations many a ghost story starts at least those told on a ship with what is seen in the night and some sailors put stock in them and others don't was liana's beacon actually given to the sailors because by her was it actually a divine gift he didn't know was this just the crazy ramblings of old sailors too far in their cups wanting to scare the likes of young sailors passed down through the generations while it might be he shakes his head he looks at you and he explains that well he doesn't know he does believe more than once he's seen things a sailor who'd said they'd seen the hunter shark in the sky but no one else had and then that sailor died citing the hidden cluster citing four or five of them seeing them shine brightly making a wish finding an opportunity a promotion life getting better and so he's quite concerned for on that night on the night of the 22nd as it changed to the 23rd there were three very visible signs in the sky the hidden cluster all five of them shone brightly an omen of good fortune to come but the hunter shark circled baleful and bright a sign of death and the devouring worm a sign of impending disaster and so it was on vilum the 23rd of morgren in the year 1069 pr during the early hours of the morning that you first saw it sylvie the dauntless has been at sea for 37 days since leaving merstwall 33 of which were spent in the belly of the mist. But now the mist wall is behind you, and you think that you can make out something on the horizon. As the dauntless rises upon the waves, there's a fleck of green in the distance, a fleck that expands to become a line, a line that rises sharply into browns and grays. capped with white a coastline you've made it 
what flashes through Sylvie's mind? What do you say? I think she'd be pretty quiet, but I do think that she would say, well, I guess we're about to find out. And she'd be thinking of all of the visions that she saw while she was in the furnace, thinking of her friends, and hoping that the new adventures they got into are not omens of death and terrible tragedy and disaster. As you mutter a bit under your breath, a grin breaks out across Khan's face, and he puts a hand on your back. Before he leans down and yells to the sailors on deck, Land! Ho! And that is where we'll end this episode. Thank you for listening to Roll With Adventure, where we bring you this story from our imagination to your ears. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe for future episodes, rate us where you get your podcast, and visit us at www.rollwithadventure.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can write us at dm at rollwithadventure.com. Our intro and outro music is Brave by Arcane Anthems. Thanks for the components of this episode's soundscapes. Go to zapsplat.com, Purple Planet Music, and Arcane Anthems. Full credits are in the episode description. Sorry, I muted myself so I could cough a whole bunch. I'm just going to take a drink. We made it, guy. Bum, bum, bum. Only to be killed by whipping <laughs> once we reach shore. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's fine. There's five jellyfish in the sky and only two bad omens. So obviously the jellyfish outweigh <laughs> the death worm. <laughs> Oh, okay, good. I, when you put it that way, I, I feel good about this. I feel relieved. We're going to be fine. you got a sign that blood is going to be spilled and that there's going to be death. And then you've got another sign that there's impending disaster. And then another sign that's like, good omens, good things. Well, the death thing doesn't worry her too much. She's like, oh, Ashen's just here. It's fine. But the devouring worm is the thing that she's caught up on for sure. Like, you know, just terrible tragedy. It's fine. <laughs> I've been, like, dying, like, ever since the last session. I was like, oh, God, I want I want to know what happens next. Come on, come on, come on. I've almost caught up on the podcast, so I'm going to have nothing soon. 